In just a moment, we are going to read the very last words of the greatest sermon ever given by the smartest man who has ever lived, Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to hear um, his admonition at the very end of this great, great sermon. Let's share in God's good word together. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. In trouble in the backfield. Wants to throw down. He's going to go deep. And I mean deep. And I mean touchdown, Florida. Jones lines up in the slot to the right of Solomon. He is back to throw. He is rolling. Looking downfield. Has time to set up. Throws it long. Has a man. It's up for Brandon. Urkovici sets, loads up, heaving one deep, and it is caught, Dylan Strong! Do you believe it? Arizona State wins on a Hail Mary! A Hail Mary! Go deep! Go, it's exciting, isn't it? When you go deep, it's going to go deep, it's going to go really deep. It gets exciting. It's exciting. We love seeing this stuff. And so I would submit to you that in your faith life, it gets exciting when you do what? You, when you go deep. When you go deep. Nobody jumps up and down for a one-yard run for second and nine. Nobody digs that. But when you go deep, when it's all on the line, when the time is running out, when you're giving everything you've got and you've waited for this moment, go deep. Go deep. And if your faith life is feeling a little boring or a little stale, maybe it's because you haven't gone deep. When I was a little kid, I would go to church, and we would, at Bible school and other times, we would sing this song, deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Sing with me if you know it. Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Over the last three weeks, I keep studying, what does this mean? And I Googled it, and they said, we don't know. I mean, people make up stuff, but they're like, I don't know, keeps the kids quiet and busy, keeps their hands to themselves. Except for me, in the middle, I'm like, deep and bam, bam, deep and bam, bam. Kids are like, oh, ah, ah, quit. And then, if you, if you know the, the next part, then, then they, they throw in these little things like, mm and wide, mm and wide, there's a fountain flowing, mm wide, mm and wide, mm and wide, there's a fountain flowing, mm and wide. And then it gets really tricky, because you know what's coming next, don't you? Mm and mm, mm and mm, there's a fountain flowing. Mm, mm, mm. mm and mm, mm and mm, there's a fountain flowing. Mm, mm, mm. Now, I would submit to you that as Christians, too often we have looked at the call of Christ to go deep. We have found it too costly. So Christ says, go deep, and we go, mm. And then Christ says, and all are welcome. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. The Greek word is cosmos, the most inclusive word you could possibly get. And we go, wide is a little too scary. Wide's really too scary. We really want to go to church with people like us, or at least close to us. I mean, at least in our neighborhood or in our zip code or, you know, they kind of look like us, think like us. 
And so if the deep is too costly, we go, mm, wide is too scary, and we go, mm-mm. And so before you know it, people come to church, and we're like, mm, mm-mm, mm-mm, we think you should hit the parking lot, mm-mm, you know? And guess what? The world says, well, that doesn't have anything to offer me, because we're neither deep or wide. We're just, mm-mm. How do you feel about church these days? Mm-mm. If you ask somebody outside the church. And that's because Christ calls us to go where? Deep and wide. Right. That's what the sermon series is about. So we said, okay, well, well week one, what is church? Well, the, the word that Jesus uses, the, the word that the early church uses, ecclesia. Say that with me. Ecclesia, which is a gathering for a specific purpose. Originally, it was a military word, word where, where the military group, the ecclesia, would go out to take that hill. This group does that specific purpose. And so if that's what church is, if that's really... Uh, what church is, we, we got our word church from the German word church, which was about a location, not a sent group, which caused a lot of problems in the church, still does today. But if we're really going to be ecclesia, then what does that mean? What is our specific purpose? Well, if you've, if you've been to church here before, you know this. We say it each week so we don't forget. Read it with me. To help non-religious and non-active Christians become radical Christ followers. What does that mean? To really follow Jesus. We have one question here. Do you want to follow Jesus? And if the answer is yes, come on. So that gets us to the second question we looked at last week. Who's church for? Everyone who wants to follow Jesus. Will you say that with me? Everyone who wants to follow Jesus. Now, I have some friends that even push me on this. And they're like, Mark, how are they supposed to know that they want to follow Jesus or who Jesus is if everyone's not welcome? You think they're picking that up on CNN, CNN on Monday at 3? No. So you could argue that church is for everyone, and then they learn to follow Jesus. But at least for now, we'll start here. Everyone who wants to follow Jesus. That's what we say at Exploration. So if you want to come and know about our church, then come on. But just know that that's what we're about. We're going to ask you to follow Jesus. So that's what we did the first two weeks. This week, we're going to say, well, how do we do that? How do we follow Jesus or grow in our faith, mature in our faith? Because the very last thing that Jesus says before he ascends, um, at the very end of Matthew, before he goes up to the Father, he says, make disciples. Make disciples. Make apprentices of me. That's what he's saying. Make apprentices, students, people who walk in my way. And so what are we trying to do? When we say we want to make disciples, if we say we want to grow in our faith, we want to mature in our faith, what are we trying to do? It will very simply put, it means this. We want to help people trust God more and more. Will you say that with me? We want to help people do what? Trust God more and more. Have confidence in God. So this is different than knowing more about God. Now, I would submit to you that the more you know about God, oftentimes the easier it is to trust him. If you see God's faithfulness throughout all 66 books of the Bible, you, you see God's faithfulness, and it, and it can become easier to trust God because as we look at other people who are in a scary situation and they trusted God, then maybe we can too. But you know what? That's nothing compared to actually trusting him, finding him faithful, and then taking another step, and then trusting him again, finding him faithful and taking another step. You see, your own story is much more impactful to you than someone else's story, but sometimes you can't start your story until you've heard somebody else's story. So let me say what we don't believe around here, so let me just clear this up, because this confuses people sometimes. What we don't believe about maturing in our faith is that you can get that uh, in a Bible study or a small group exclusively. We don't believe that classes or programs necessarily mature people. That's not what they create. Do you know what they create? It's not bad, it's good. Classes and programs create smart people and busy people. That's what they do. Now, Done well, it creates an environment to where you can grow in your faith, but it doesn't necessarily necessitate that. 
The people that Jesus had the most problem with were very smart, busy religious folk. And so we've been intentional around here for almost 20 years to say, you know what? We want you to do what makes sense for you in this season. And if you have four kids under the age of five, good luck. You know, you don't need to beat yourself up that you're not in four Bible studies, you're not in all this service. You know, get some help, put your kids in the nursery, and sleep through Bible study. It's okay. Because you're not going to be kind to your children if you don't ever get any sleep. Right? I mean, you have to do what the season of your life dictates. Does it make sense? And so it's not a one-size-fits-all program. What, what works for a 20-year-old uh, kid in college doesn't work for an 80-year-old uh, that's nearing death. These, these are very different groups. And so classes and programs create smart and busy people. Is that a bad thing? Not necessarily. But if you're already pretty smart and you're really, really busy, it might be the worst thing for you. It might be the tipping point. I've actually met well-meaning people that were kind of shamed because they didn't do something that somebody else in the church thought they should do, and they quit going to church altogether because it just didn't work for them anymore. Does this make sense? Now, I would also say to you that some of us need to reprioritize, that we need to be able to say no to this, this, and this in order to make room for that. That's certainly true. But Jesus, friends, make, make sure that we get this right. Jesus is not something you can just add on to a very busy schedule. It's not possible. He's either Lord of everything or nothing at all. You can't just throw him on top of what you do and hope that it works. And those of you who have tried know it doesn't work. And I've tried it myself. Everybody tries it. You try to do what you want to do, and you hope Jesus blesses it. You kind of sprinkle him on like, you know, salt and pepper, paprika or something. It just doesn't work. He is the fool, the bread of life, the fountain that, where we drink from and we never thirst again. So what does fuel our faith development? What does help us trust God? Well, there are five things that we know work. They, re they really do work, and they work together. Um, and it's not necessarily prescription, but over time, over more than 20 years in ministry, uh, myself and other people that I respect have kind of watched this work, and we've been trying to implement this in the children's department, the youth department, and, and the adult department, and, and all these things working together. And so while these may seem like I'm, I'm flip-flopping on this, I'm not. I just want to show you the holistic piece. But the question is for you um, is what piece do you need? And what season are you in? And, and how can you step into something today? Because none of it works if you don't do it. That's why Jesus says, if you hear these words of mine and do what? Act on them. Then you'll be wise. But hearing it isn't any big deal. It's about acting on it. So number one is practical teaching. When you understand what's being taught from the Bible, and you can apply it to your life, we find this all the time. When you say to someone, well, how did you come to faith? And they'll say, oh, I had this youth director in seventh grade, and it really spoke to me. Or I had this, this person in confirmation, or I had this Sunday school teacher when I was in third grade, and I just fell in love with them. And I mean, the Bible just made sense to me for the first time. Or I, I went to this church, or I saw this person online, or I started listening to these podcasts. And all of a sudden, all this confusion that I had, this person just made sense to me. Does this make sense to you? And then say, oh, for the first time, this, okay, I get it. I get it. And so when Creighton and Andy and I are preparing our sermons, um, we say this, what do we want you to know? And what do we want you to do? And until we can answer those two things, we don't write the sermon. Because otherwise, we're confused and we just share our confusion with you. And so we say, no, really, what do, what do we want you to know and what do we want you to do? Well, I want you to know these five things and I want you to do one of them for sure. A any one of them that fits you. So our sermon prep is never complete without a what? Action step, because that's what Jesus says. This greatest sermon ever given only makes sense if you act upon it. Take a step. Now, here's the thing. I would much rather you know one verse of the Bible 
love your neighbor as yourself, and do it and act upon it, then memorize all 66 books and not act on it. Make sense? Because if you know the whole Bible and you don't, you don't do anything about it, it does you no good. But even if you know the one verse, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that'll change your life if you actually do it, if you actually spend your life trying to do it. So that's what Jesus says. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them is a fool. It's just like building a sandcastle. looks pretty for a little bit, but when the waves come in, that's it. So practical teaching is important. I hope that you get that here. I hope you were able to receive that from myself and from others. Uh, but if not, um, you know, log on to Church of the Resurrection. Adam Hamilton's a, a, a great teacher. Andy Stanley's a great teacher. Craig Rochelle, two miles down, is a great teacher. Uh, these people all, all are good teachers, and if it works for you, listen to them. It doesn't hurt my feelings at all. Now, if you tell me every Sunday, you know, Craig was better, it'll hurt my feelings later. You know, no, don't do that to me. But, you know, I listen to lots of preachers. Preachers who listen to other preachers get better, right? So, secondly, private disciplines. Um, while you need the corporate experience, you also need uh, people grow. When you say, well, how, did you ever have a season of growth in your life? Yeah. You know, when I intentionally turned off my radio on my drive to work and I talked to God on my commute, those 30 minutes in and 30 minutes out, every day, the season that I did that, when I was really disciplined about that, Things started happening in my life. Things started to change. Just by turning off the radio and driving in silence to work and asking God what he wanted to do with the day and then talking to God about the day on my way home. For those of you who commute downtown, that's a great discipline. It's very simple. It doesn't cost you any more time. And, and it might save your life. Getting off your phone and just talking to God down, talking to God back. And, and all of this starts, these private disciplines. People may want you to do all sorts of things. But friends, it's really about silence and solitude. It's really hard to grow if you don't have any silence in your life or if you've always got people needing something from you. You know, when is that time in any given week that you have an hour or two or three where it's just you? Just you. You let God take care of the world and you start to be renewed. So Thomas Merton says it like this. Almost all activity makes me ill, he says. But as soon as I'm alone and silent again, I sink into deep peace, recollection, and happiness. Thomas Merton, I recommend him to you. You can follow him on Twitter, Facebook, all these other things. Um, he, he knew the interior life well. So Jesus says it like this. Whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. It's not for show. It's not for anybody else anyway. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Because God looks at our hearts. God looks at our hidden actions of giving and serving. How do we give to him? How do we serve him? If you really want your faith life to come alive, um, do things for people and don't let them know it's you. Do it in secrecy. Do something nice for someone and never let them know it was you. It's a great feeling. It's very exciting and it's fun. Now, you, you may say, well, well hold on. Uh, we're, you know, we're out of the, uh, the tithing season and all that. But, but here's the thing. The people that I know that are growing fastest in their faith are the ones who are growing in their, their faith and trust in God through their finances. That's just the reality of it. So we give first to God and we say, okay, God, I trust you. And then we save second because you can't be in debt to anyone other than God and still serve God. Because if you owe Visa, then Visa is going to come calling first. And you're going to have to give the Visa. So we want you saving money, getting out of debt, saving money, but giving to God first. And saying to God, okay, how do, how do you want me to live on the rest? How do you want me to do that? This is a great way to grow your faith. Your, your faith will begin to change when you do this. When you say, okay, God, I'm putting you in charge of my finances. Uh, whatever percentage you choose. I know for people who haven't tithed before, okay, start somewhere. Pick a percentage, 2, 3, 4, 5, 8%. doesn't matter. 
But start and say, okay, God, I'm giving that to you first. That's the first thing that comes out. Um, and then I'm going to save, and then I'm going to live on the rest, whatever it is. And I'm going to trust you that I can do that because you're going to provide for me. Right? So, thirdly then, personal ministry. So one, practical teaching. Um, and what's number two? What, what? What? Oh, yeah, private distance. That's good. You shouldn't tell me that. It's supposed to be private. Anyway, okay, personal ministry. This is huge. Everybody ought to do something with your faith community, and no one should do more than three things. Really, no, nobody here should be worn out by church. There's more than 600 of us that come here each week. So no one should be worn out, and no one should be lazy. We should all do a piece, a small piece. You can greet at the door. You can help with kids' ministry. Uh, you can be in short-term mission. There's all sorts of things, but it's the personal ministry that changes our lives. Because it's when we begin to teach that we realize what we don't know, and so we begin to study. It puts us back into that practical teaching. When we've got that third grader that's on our last nerve, it drives our prayer life. Oh, God, help me. I have to go to Sunday school. Right? And so your personal ministry drives the other two. Right? Now, I, I want to say this to you, and, and some of you may know this. You say, well, but I'm not ready. Of course you're not ready. Nobody's ready for ministry. Ever. Any more than you're ready to have children or get married. Or do all sorts of things. And so we don't wait until people are prepared or fully equipped. We put them into ministry. You may have noticed this at the communion rail. Whoever comes, comes. Um, it, it's not that hard, you know. The body of Christ, blood of Christ. And we don't do it perfectly. And, and we have people that come up and, and they realize when they get up, they're like, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. That's okay, too. We would much prefer err on the side of too soon than not at all. Right? How are you supposed to grow? How are you supposed to know? And, and if you, I love the way the kindergarten teachers say it. They say, if you can't make a mistake, you can't make what? Anything. So we're not going to do things perfectly. That's okay. But have you ever met anyone who ever felt completely prepared for ministry? I have, and they weren't. <laughs> That's the way that works. Chantel and I have found that somebody who on our staff says, oh, I got this, it means they don't got this. It means they don't know. They're... They can't see their blind spot, right? So Jesus says to the disciples, 5,000 people are listening to his teaching. They want to go home. They're tired. Everybody's hungry. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you give them something to eat. That's crazy. The disciples thought Jesus had lost his mind. Now, when Jesus had heard this, he withdrew from there to a deserted place all by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot in the towns. And when he went ashore, these great crowds came, and he had compassion for them, and he cured their sick. He was pouring ministry and power out of them. And it was evening, the disciples came to him, and they said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so they may go into the villages, buy food for themselves. And Jesus says to them, They don't have to go away. Say it with me. You give them something to eat. They're like, Jesus, there's 5,000 people out here. You know what Jesus says? Stop with the excuses. So, no. The people are hungry. They want to know if God has anything for them. Feed them. And they reply, we don't have anything but five pieces of bread and two fish. You know what Jesus says to them and to us? Okay. Bring them to me. Bring them to me. Jesus says, bring them here to me. And whatever your worry is, whatever your doubt is, whatever your unpreparedness is, Jesus just says, bring it to me. I'm the Lord of life. I'll help you. I think if Jesus were to tweet today, he would say it like this. Just bring me what you do have. 
and I'll work with that. Really, just whatever you have. A couple pieces of bread, two fish. Okay, let's see what happens. And if you know the story, you know that there were more than 12 baskets left over. More than enough. Miracles happen when we bring what we do have to Jesus. Fourthly, then, we have providential relationships. Providential relationships. Now, you can't manufacture this. You can't make them happen, but you can't pay attention. What, what do we mean by this? A providential relationship, and, and, and when I talk to people about, well, how did you come to faith? It's either that practical teaching piece or they found God alone in silence. But more often than not, it was, you know, when Mrs. Jones taught my fourth grade class, I just, I just knew Jesus was in her, like he was talking to me through her. So what we mean by this is when we hear from God through someone, when we hear from God through someone, and, and hopefully that's me in this piece, but also hopefully there are other people in your life that when you talk to them, when you're on the phone, maybe it's grandma or an aunt or a cousin or a friend or a neighbor, when you talk to them, you're just like, wow, I wonder if God's saying something to me. You just rarely hear God through them. Many of you have, have met these people or some of you are those people for others. And then the other one is when we see God in someone. When maybe we don't even know them well, um, and we, we just see them, we're like, wow, God's moving in their life. God's moving in their life. One of those providential uh, relationships for me is Jay Wright of our church. Uh, this is Jay. Uh, he was our building chair. Uh, he and Emmett here on the back row and I uh, spent about five hours in a job trailer together every week uh, for about, felt like eight million years. But it was about a year um, as we were building the other building. Uh, Jay liked to wear the pink hat. Um, he thought that was funny, um, and so uh, Jay helped us build that, but here's the thing. While he was helping us build the church, he was going through uh, really a big crisis of faith about whether he would give up his building business that he had started himself and grown it, but we were about to hit the, the crash because this was 0506. He knew the big crash was coming, and he knew that he needed to get out of that uh, if he was going to survive, and how was that going to happen because everything was shutting down. I don't know if you remember 08 and how that was. Um, but it was a very scary, difficult time, and he's building the church that we now are a part of, and Emma and myself, uh, and lots of other folks, but uh, primarily those two. And um, we decided that in all this chaos that we would go to Mexico, that we would build two homes for people that didn't have them, a little casita. And so uh, the problem was um, that other than um, really uh, donde es el baño, we knew no Spanish. That, that was about it. Where's the bathroom? That's about all we had. And so uh, Jay, you know, helped us uh, enter the building. It was a great time. But in that season, uh, we go to um, the northern part of Mexico, right across the border. And I asked Jay to write about something that happened on, on this trip. Um, and what happens is we pay the $2,000 that it costs to get all the materials and all that. We go down with about 12 to 20 people. And then you build two homes in, in two days, basically. And then you consecrate it on the third day, and then you drive back. Um, and so we were on one of those trips. We built six to eight houses down there. And uh, on that trip, we built two of them. And so I said, Jay, do you remember that trip we went on? He goes, oh, yeah. I said, would you tell the church about it? He said, oh, yeah. Uh, pray for him. He's really sick. He couldn't get here today because he's, he's got the illness uh, that half the world has. Um, but he writes it like this. He says, what I remember most um, is about being really tired uh, and, and confused about what needs to happen. Because what would, what would happen is after you finish the casita, you would have this ceremony at the end where you would do a house blessing. And you would ask the missioners, whoever went on the trip, hey, do you have any extra cash on you so we can go to the Mexican market and buy these housewarming gifts? 
So everybody kind of pulls out what they have, a 20, a 50, or whatever that they were going to do for like trinkets or you know, meals or whatever, and they wind up giving it to bless this family. So you can imagine a family that's never had a home in their life, and they see these people from the United States come and build them a home because of the love of Jesus. They run a Bible school for their kids while the others are working, and then at the end of it, not only are they getting the first house they've ever lived in, then these people on top of that go and give them a housewarming. We talk about radical, extravagant generosity and radical hospitality. And so we did. Uh, everybody pulled out all the money that we had that, that we didn't need to get home. Uh, we gave it to Jay, um, and we try to run to the Mexican market. We don't know when it closes. It turns out that we've got about 30 minutes left, and there's all these things that we want to get for the family. And so we spread out, like all 20 of us, just grabbing things that we think would be cool um, for uh, the home. And none of us know how to translate the dollars we have to pesos. Um, and we're like, yeah, I have no how to do this. So we gather all the stuff, and we come to the checkout. We give everything to the checkout. Jay's got the money. And the lady at the register says, it'll be this many pesos. And he gives her the money. And we were three pesos off. And Jay writes it like this. He says, there was no plausible explanation. I remember laughing and feeling really dumb. It was a time when I was struggling with God's lack of co-planning with me on what lay ahead and why, and it helped me understand the value of God's leading and enjoy being in the human relationship, being the human, not the God in the relationship. And he said peace and confidence were the outcome of that experience. Now, this is a guy who had built our church, started a business, was trans transferring into a different business, and he saw God show up in a powerful way in a personal ministry that affected the rest of his life. Does it make sense? That's how God does it. He said, there's just no way to reconcile all the pesos that it would have taken for all the different people. There was no coordination of it all. It was just something that God did. And so our question about this is, what can we do to create environments where these types of relationships can happen? It's also true uh, that Jay and I and a few other men were in a morning uh, group together, accountability group together in that season. And so that, that helps create those other pieces. What relationships do you have that might be providential, that God's using you or using somebody else to grow your faith? And then finally, um, something that I'll call pivotal circumstances. Pivotal circumstances. And what we know about this is everybody goes through these pivotal moments in our lives. Uh, marriage, babies, divorce, death, illness, loss of a job, gain of a job. Job transfer. All these sorts of things happen. And what happens is some people see that and they think of God as mean or vindictive or terrible or punishing them and they step away. Others see that as God coming alongside them, providentially helping them and blessing them and they step into it and they get closer to God. You can't decide what those are. Those are going to come to you. But it's not what happens. It's how we respond to it and who we have around us when it happens. Who do you really have around you when those things happen? Because they happen to all of us. You just don't know when or why or what. So in Andy Stanley's book, Deep and Wide, he shares this story about a young Steve Jobs. Many of you all know who that is. He's now deceased. But when Steve Jobs was a 13-year-old boy, he experienced a crisis of faith. When he was 13, on the cover of the July 12, 1968 edition of Life magazine was a disturbing picture of two children from the war-torn region of Biafra. Now, Biafra was a secessionist state in Nigeria uh, for about two and a half years. And in that time, more than one million people, they either died, were killed, or were starved to death in less than three years. 
And at 13, Steve sees this, and he found it impossible to reconcile this photo with the lessons he had learned about God and Jesus and his Lutheran Sunday school class. And so whereas the average 13-year-old kid might have shrugged it off and kind of gone on with what 13-year-old boys do, not Steve. Steve wanted to know. He wanted answers. And his biographer, Walter Isaacson, describes what happened next. Steve took the magazine to Sunday school, and he confronted the church pastor. And he says to the pastor, if I raise my finger, will God know which one I'm going to raise before I do it? And the pastor said, well, well yes, Steve. I mean, God knows everything. And Steve Jobs then pulls out this life cover, and he asks. He throws it down in front of him. He says, well, does God know about this? And what's going to happen to these children? Now, Isaacson says that that was the last time that Jobs ever stepped foot in the church. That the answer he received that day was less than acceptable. And he never went back to church. Not at that age, or that age, or that age, or that age, until his death. But again, I would submit to you, it's not the picture of the cover that determined the outcome of Steve's faith. It was his interpretation of the photo that drove him away. It was the lack of someone to sit with him and grieve with him and work with him and struggle with him in faith that Paul says we all do. We all struggle. We all press on to make the prize our own. And when we don't have people who will walk with us and struggle with us and move with us, it's often tragic and a harsh world that we live in, full of hate and death and intentional destruction in places like Biafra. So at his death, as far as we know, there was no faith community around him. No one to comfort the people around him, his family. And I just wonder... I wonder what 13-year-old boys find here when they come to Acts 2 with their questions and their hurts and their wonders about what happens in our world. And it's not unique to 13-year-old boys. It's true for all of us. Uh, these people show up when they get married, when they have a baby, when they get a new job. They show up when there's a death, a divorce, or illness, or betrayal. And the question is, will we as a community, not your pastoral staff, because we're, we're paid to do what we do. That's different feels different the question is as a community of faith how do we respond how do we sit with people how do we love them what do we do so our action steps are these friends get a bible today so if you want practical teaching it's right here we have bibles here uh, we collect them we get a lot of bibles and umbrellas at church over time and so if you want a bible we got a Bible for you. Different translations. We even have the Amplified Bible. It's very loud. So whatever Bible you'd like, we probably have it here. You're welcome to it. Don't leave here today without a Bible if you don't have one. Or if you just want to check out a different Bible, come grab one. Okay, we got everything on the screen. So um, take a Bible. We hope you'll, you'll do that. Also, we want you to create tag time, which is time alone with God. That's what we call it at camp. Uh, we just want you to have some time alone with God. Just create that in your day somewhere, somehow. And then finally... Pray. Ask God to do God's part. Jesus, Son of God, save me. Show me. Use me. And I want to say this to you. We can do all these things, and they're all good, and we know that this is how people actually mature in faith. We know this. But it's also true that God's up to things that we don't know and we don't understand. This morning, um, at, just before service, I was looking through these Bibles, 
um, just making sure that, you know, that we weren't giving you anything wackadoo. And um, there, there's a, a young man um, sitting over here on, on the right-hand row, John Erickson. Um, and John's been thinking about giving his life to Christ over the last few months. Uh, uh, his sisters have been a part of our church uh, for almost 19 years now. And, um, and so John's been thinking about this. We talked about baptism about two weeks ago. Um, and just, it's wonderful. And I, and I hope you say yes someday. We're all praying for you, rooting for you. No pressure. Um, but um, we're, we're in this conversation. And uh, so I'm looking through these. And I, and I want to make sure we weren't giving away somebody's Bible. And as I, as I open it up, I see a stamp in one of these Bibles. And it says HCE. HCE. So I'm trying to read it because, you know, it's embossed. It's a press thing. Uh, and it says Erickson on it. Like, that's weird. Like, that's Mandy. Mickey's last name. John's last name. So I go out to, to Mandy and I say, hey, do you know an H.C. Erickson? Her eyes get this big. Is that my grandfather? It's my grandfather's Bible. And I said, well, I just found it in our box that's been in the closet for 10 years. I just thought you might want to have your granddad's Bible. Now, friends, as far as I know, H.C.'s never been to our church. We don't know how the Bible showed up in our box this morning. But I, I think... I think he's talking to you, John. <laughs> you do. You can't, you can't make that stuff up. You can't make that stuff happen. God just does stuff. He gives you these things to say, I love you. I'm thinking of you. All of heaven is rejoicing. We're ready to throw a party about your saying yes. Even granddad on the other side saying, hey, come on. Your granddad is past, right? By now? Okay, good. Well, not good, but, you know. <laughs> Isn't that cool? That's just a cool story. So anyway, the Erickson Bible's not in here, but the others you can have, right? Because that's for them. And so God's at work, friends. God's at work. Amen? Let's join him there. Let's pray.